Let's talk about the Christmas disconnect for a little bit here as we're getting rolling. The Christmas disconnect, what is that? At its best, at its best, it's when you're on autopilot for the month of December, uh, driven by the calendar uh, and the dictations of tradition. Uh, That's, at best, the Christmas disconnect. However, uh, it can go a little bit darker, and, and that's where that toxic, noxious stew of expectations collide and mix in there with disappointments, and that begins, that stew uh, begins to just sort of come to a, a boil and overflow, and you're a mess inside and to be around. Um, that's the Christmas disconnect. Uh, perhaps you, um, you, can, you can think of it this way. You're surrounded by the trappings of the season, but without any feeling sense whatsoever that is fitted to those trappings, to, you know, what's going on in the inside is hardly matching and squaring with what's going on on the outside. Uh, I'm sure I could, I'm going to use this analogy, no few of you could relate to this, so the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? The, the old one, going, going way back, Vince Guaraldi and, and, and all of that, and the choppy animation. Um, you know, you get to the very end, and poor old Charlie Brown cries out. He's at his wit's end. Can anyone please tell me what Christmas is all about? And Linus steps in, as only Linus could. Linus steps in, and he then so wisely, so winsomely recites then from Luke chapter 2 and the account, the biblical historical account, of uh, the, the angels there appearing before the shepherds over the, uh, out in the fields of Bethlehem. Well, you know, I, I can only assume that Charlie Brown, excuse me, that Linus, that Linus had uh, spent some time uh, perhaps in his devotional reading that morning uh, there in Luke's gospel, and that's a fine place to go in terms of answering poor old Charlie Brown's question. Another place he could have gone was Isaiah. And that's where we're going now. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you're trying to find the book of Isaiah, the old-fashioned way with a, a book that's bound in paper and all that, uh, it's, it's roughly halfway through. Uh, it's a little bit past the halfway point. The Psalms is the heart. The Psalms is there in the middle. Uh, head a few books over to the right. Isaiah is a big one. You can hardly miss it uh, there in the Old Testament. Uh, If you hit Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they're great to read, but you've gone too far. Go to the left. We're in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. We're actually really just camping out on verse 2 this morning, uh, drilling down into that, but I did want to read the the context of it. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, 
the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together for just a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for inspiring these words, not just in a sentimental, heartfelt sort of way. Isaiah was feeling soft and fuzzy one day, and he wrote this down. But no, the Holy Spirit spoke in and through the prophet 700 years before the events that he is speaking of. So these are your words. Uh, The people then needed them. Your people since have needed them, and we need them now. And we ask that you would speak to our own poor hearts Help us to see indeed how rich we are in Jesus, how wonderful the gospel, Advent, Christmas, coming of the King and the kingdom message is. Move, we pray, O Spirit, within us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my very favorite Christmas memories is a Christmas party back in 1984. Let me set the context for you. I was a senior in high school. I had just become a Christian just a few months prior to that. This means that um, I now have eyes with which to see, ears with which to hear things I I just could not see, could not hear before. Uh, There in that uh, that Christmas party, I was experiencing something that I'd been already for the last several months experiencing up to that point, and that was... Things that I had grown up in the church understand. I'd grown up in the church, but it was only years later that I actually came to Christ. Um, I'm hearing things that, what, I had heard before, but I'm really hearing them for the first time. And I was even experiencing that in in a profound way that evening at this party as we're gathered together and singing these carols that, again, I'd sung umpteenth numbers of times in a variety of different gatherings, but I'm hearing the lyrics for the first time. I can still remember some of the the, the songs. O Holy Night was one of them. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Joy to the world. It was as though I had never really heard these songs, much less sung them, before before that Christmas. Now, how can that be? I've heard it all. I've sung it all. In a way, yes. How can that be? It can, it's, it's because Christ is at the center of any real Christmas celebration. He has to be. If it's to be any real Christmas celebration, Jesus, the Christ, has to be at the, the core, the center 
of it all. Isaiah would hardly have disagreed with this. He's saying and he's showing as much the same here in Isaiah 9 and all, and all through the book. And we've been right now, in case you, this is your first week here in the, the Advent season, this is the, the third in a, in a series that we're just loosely calling Advent Through the Eyes of Isaiah. And we're now in chapter 9, just kind of jumping around there thematically uh, through the book of Isaiah. And what Isaiah is helping us to, to see, is, again, is that um, for there to be any substance whatsoever to the Christmas celebration, Jesus has got to be at the heart of it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we began by, by looking at how uh, Christmas is, is that which in the, the Advent and the coming of the Christ addresses the deepest longings of every human heart. Last week, we were looking at how in, in the coming of the Christ, this is something so new, so startling, so great that it demands that we behold it. And so we were delving into what that meant last week. And now here this week, here in Isaiah 9, what we're beginning to see, we'll, we'll see, is that Isaiah is using some of the most basic terms, basic ideas to communicate the most profound, the, 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 um, the best of news. The best of news. In Christ, light shines in the darkness. It's about as simple as you can get. In Christ, light shines in the darkness. And we've got to grasp that if we're going to grasp what Christmas is. Let me just, I'm going to say it again because this is so vital. In Christ, light shines in the darkness. We must grasp that if we are to grasp anything at all of what Christmas really is. Now, that, of course, begs some questions, doesn't it? What is this darkness of which you speak? What does Isaiah mean when he talks of darkness? And then conversely, when he speaks of light, what is that? What does it mean for this light, whatever this darkness is? What does this mean for this light, whatever that is, to shine, to pierce, to transform it? And what is it? Or maybe even we could say, who is it? Well, those are the questions that we need to delve into. So let's do that. It's really just, it's, it's so simple. It's just two parts, two, two things. And the first has to do with the shadow of darkness. It's there in your outline there in the, uh, in the bulletin. So we're going to start with a, a biblical overview of this concept of darkness. Now we're going to go 100 miles up, low orbit, get a, get a kind of a, an overview, just, just get our bearings just a little bit. What does the Bible, how does the Bible speak of this concept? What does it mean when we speak of, of, of darkness? First off, you need to understand that darkness in and of itself is, is not a thing. Darkness is the absence of a thing. Darks, darkness is the absence of light. That's what darkness is. Now, that said, interestingly enough, you find darkness directly referred to some 200 times in the Bible. Let me read you a helpful summary uh, as opposed to just reading all 200 references. I'm going to read you a summary from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery that describes darkness in this way. Considered in itself, darkness is thus a strongly negative image in human experience. It is physically oppressive. It is the natural environment for a host of evil happenings, and it is associated with death, imprisonment, and ultimate evil. Darkness is in principle associated with evil, opposed to God's purposes of order and goodness in the universe. 
and in human society. The question then becomes what God does with regard to darkness and whether, in fact, He is Lord over it. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Okay, so that's your, you know, 100 foot, excuse me, 100 mile up big picture overview of what the Bible has to say about this concept of darkness. Let's look at Isaiah now. How do you see that transposed into Isaiah and what he has to say about this? So we're going to look at just a few passages there in, in, uh, in Isaiah, and it's a, very, it's, it's a distressing picture. It's a, really a distressing picture when you, when you begin to understand what, what he's speaking of, and it's profound, and it's full, it's, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is full of these references. I'm only going to just read a few. Isaiah 5, verse 20, uh, he begins by speaking of the moral confusion of the time. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. As a consequence of such moral confusion and chaos, uh, a purging was coming, an invasion was coming, and uh, a dealing with, if you will, of the sin of the people and those who were encouraging such sin in their midst. And you see that in Isaiah 5.30, just a few verses after what we just read. They, that is these invading armies, will growl over it, the land. On that day, like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. And as though that wasn't enough, we see there in the, towards the end of chapter 8, just before we began to read in chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 8, and what you see here is a reference to, I'll put it this way, one of the worst things God could do is give us what we want. Give us what we're demanding. And that's what you see a reference to here in Isaiah 8, verses 21 to 22. They will pass through the land. This is the people now. They will pass through the land. This is after the invasion, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah 50 is a warning that the prophet gives to the people. Do not look for false hopes in the midst of all of this. Isaiah 50, verses 10 through 11, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire this would be self-driving, self-sustained, and, and self-initiated. You who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire. And by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. As though that wasn't cheery enough, you skip a few chapters, and this is the last of these references to darkness I will read. Isaiah 59, it's a little longer, it's very sobering. Isaiah 59, verses 9 through 15, strap yourselves in. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as at the twilight among those in full vigor, we are like the dead men 
We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Wow. That's sobering. And that's Isaiah's description of the way things were at the time. That's how things stood. Now let's take all of that and bring it now into Isaiah 9-2. Okay? This passage where he speaks of darkness... Now, we have something of a fuller understanding of what of the whole Bible means by darkness, and Isaiah means by darkness. And now, let's read again Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And Isaiah is saying that the people, this is what the darkness is what they walk in. It's what they dwell in. Literally, this darkness is, is a death darkness, a death-like shadow, and this is what they live in. This is, if you will, home, the darkness. Darkness within and without. A darkness that is consists at least of, of, of ignorance and distress and despair and misery and sin. It's how things stood at the time, and in many ways, it's how they stand now. This dark world, this very, very dark world. Some of you are familiar with the, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor theologian uh, during the uh, 1930s, 1940s. Um, he was one of the very few who had the courage and integrity to speak up against Hitler and the rise of the Nazis. Uh, in fact, he was imprisoned at, at uh, late uh, in his, well, he was going to say late in his life because he was eventually executed uh, on or direct orders by Adolf Hitler uh, because of Bonhoeffer's role in an assassination plot. Bonhoeffer, in 1933, uh, was in London. And uh, he preached a sermon. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from that. You know what a mind disaster is. In recent weeks, we've had to read about one in the newspapers. The moment even the most courageous miner has dreaded his whole life is here. It is no use running into the walls. The silence all around him remains. The way out for him is blocked. He knows the people up there are working feverishly to reach the miners who are buried alive. Perhaps someone will be rescued, but here in the last shaft, an agonizing period of waiting and dying is all that remains. That's the sort of darkness Isaiah is speaking of. It's deep, it's distressing, and there's absolutely no way out. 
Not on your own. Not on your own. And again, this darkness that Isaiah is speaking of here bleeds right on over into our own day. Let me, let me give you a, so a macroscopic perspective. I'm just going to read to you, just, just remind you, in case you've forgotten, from some of the major news stories of 2019. Just quickly, just, just you know, so bursts of headlines, just to refresh your memory. Big picture. How dark is this world that we live in, okay? Notre Dame uh, burning up. Immigration crisis and refugee uh, matters. Hurricane Dorian, Walmart shooting, invasion of, by Turkey of Syria, Hong Kong unrest, synagogue shootings, unrest in Venezuela, college bribery screaming, uh, schemes, Sri Lanka, Easter Sunday massacre, and just as of late, the politicking, and I'm not going to touch what that means, of the impeachment trials. You see the darkness of the world? Macro level? How about the micro level? Let's get up close and personal. Let's think about now for a moment our own faithless, disobedient hearts. Can we talk about that? You know, that's really where all the headlines begin, right? With the individuals involved. Uh, the macro always begins with the micro. How, how we, even, even as God's people... Uh, are ruled by the priority of self over and above even the most obvious needs of people around us, the cruelty of our thoughts, the carelessness of our words, and the injury and the harm and the hurt that we bring to the people around us. It's darkness. It's darkness. Oh, and then the solutions, by the way. The solutions to this point to the darkness in which we live as well. What are the solutions, after all, that we are given by the world around us as to how we can fix this? Well, one would be, at a societal level, tolerance, which translated means um, be tolerant of everyone except those that you cannot tolerate. That's how that fleshes itself out inevitably. Or try harder. You see that a lot in churchy places. Try harder, which basically just translated means uh, go faster in the wrong direction. An article I came across just this past week um, in terms of the darkness and the mm, uh, folly of counsel that is, is given, however well-meaning it may be. Um, it's a editorial that was uh, in the Wall Street Journal just here recently, Erica Commissar, uh, who is a psychoanalyst, uh, said that she's often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? This is her answer. Lie to them. She's serious. This is not a joke. She's serious. There's a quote. The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it doesn't help children. Belief in, well, of course it doesn't. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous and incomprehensible loss, especially in an age of broken families, distracted parents, school violence, and nightmarish global warming predictions. So lie to them. 
My question to her, and I don't mean this in any way of mockery, so don't misunderstand my question. My question to her is what her response says about her worldview. If the fact that faith, even in just something beyond the bare, cold, material world of atheism, is necessary to handle the here and now, what does that tell you about your life's position, your stance? Again, I'm not trying to mock anything. I'm just trying to point out the, the inconsistency, and I, I would even say the incomprehensibility of, of that position that you have to just, you know, in this most essential thing, lie. The point being, just coming all the way back around the barn, we can hear something of the despair and the darkness of this age, even in the counsel that is given, and, try to ha and how to try to survive it. Which then takes us back to the thesis. In Christ, light shines in the darkness, and we've got to grasp that if Christmas is going to mean anything at all, which then takes us to the light, the light that is shining, the coming of the light. So now back to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Again, I'm going to take a very similar tack to the light as we took to the darkness, and that's just a first a a suborbital basic overview of the things that we need to understand what the Bible you know, summar summarily teaches on this, this topic. Now, light stands for, is typically symbolized, is points to, is associated with joy and blessing and life. And biblical writers speak of, of, of light. And again, not surprisingly, there are some 200 references in the Bible to light, just as there are, you know, explicitly to, to darkness. Sometimes they're right there beside one another. The difference being in this case, though, that um, light and the concept of light and the imagery of light, imagery of light, bookends the whole story. Genesis and Revelation. We read from Genesis earlier. And then Revelation, you can go there in the last chapter and see it yet, yet again. Light explosion of, of light. Let me read a summary again from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Again, just a capturing, um, summarizing this for us. In all of the Bible's references to light, light is not self-generated. It comes usually unbidden from outside the earthly and human sphere and transforms that sphere with a transcendent splendor. As a symbol Light thus pictures the simultaneous transcendence and eminence of God. It is from above, but it permeates everyday life. All right, now let's take this to Isaiah. What does Isaiah have to say about light? Uh, again, let's go back to Isaiah 59. Remember that was the, the sobering, uh, distressing picture that we had where we ended in our survey of Isaiah. Well, going back to Isaiah 59... You pick up where you left, we left off, and, and oh my goodness, there's something very, very different as, as Isaiah keeps going. Uh, the Lord saw it, Isaiah 59, verse 15, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw 
that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, actually, that doesn't speak directly of darkness. It's implied, excuse me, of light, but it's implied there. Now, if you keep going to chapter 60, you do see directly, explicitly mention of light. Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Skipping down to verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. The sun shall no more your light, be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Even more specifically, there are references, particularly uh, to an individual uh, regarding this light, the coming of light. Isaiah 42, this is in the the midst of what is referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. We're skipping over to Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6. Again, these words of this servant. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Who is this? Who is this? that Isaiah is speaking of here. It's Jesus. It's the Christ. Let's go back to Isaiah 9. Go back to Isaiah 9, verse 2. Read it again with all this in mind. Imagery, the rich imagery of darkness, the now the rich imagery of light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, Darkness on them has light shined. You see, this light is not a virtue. It is not a value. It is not a principle. It is a person. It is Jesus, the Christ, who came at just the right time from a particular, specific Place that, by the way, don't have the time to get into this, but in verse 1 is explicitly mentioned Galilee, where Jesus, his public ministry took place. There in verse 1 of Isaiah 9, 700 years before the events even began to take place. It's 
Jesus. And in that sense, we can say truly on us, light has shone, and so now we can see. Because Jesus, the light, has come, which is all the reason in the world to rejoice. Because light has shone, and we can see. I would be remiss if I didn't take you back to that Bonhoeffer sermon because he didn't leave us in the mine. Let me keep going. In all of, excuse me, uh, skipping now, but suddenly, here we go, but suddenly, a noise that sounds like tapping and breaking in the rock can be heard. Unexpectedly, voices cry out, where are you? Help is on the way. Then the disheartened miner picks himself up. His heart leaps. He shouts, here I am. Come on through and help me. I'll hold out until you come. Just come soon. A final desperate hammer blow to his ear. Now the rescue is near. Just one more step and he is free. We've spoken of Advent itself. That is how it is with the coming of Christ. Look up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is why. Christmas is rightly the season of light. Look around you. Drive around the city streets tonight. See the decorations. They're there for good reason, even if the people who hung them don't even understand it. It's as though this world can't help itself. You see the the lights, you see... Uh, you see the homes, the houses, you see the candles in the windows, you see the wreaths, you see the trees. And you may know the, 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 the origin of, of the tradition of the Christmas tree as we know it, as we celebrate it today, comes from Germany. Christians as far back as the uh, 16th century were bringing trees into their homes and or, or, um, adorning them with, with candles, a hazardous undertaking, wouldn't recommend it, but... Um, that they did, and, and, it's, and, and no few have said that it's possible, not certain, but possible that Martin Luther was, could well have been the one who started all of this. And, and the, as the story goes, that Luther was out one cold winter night. He's walking through the snow on his way home. He's meditating upon his sermon for the upcoming Sunday, and his, his heart is just struck with the beauty of the starlight coming through the evergreen branches, and he so wants his family to experience something of this, so he brings a tree into the home sometime soon thereafter and, and strings these lights and, and somehow suspends lit candles on those branches. It's quite possible that that's where it all began. We're not quite sure, but whatever the origin of the practice is, it's good and right to do. It's good and right to do. Because in Jesus, indeed, light has come into the darkness. Light is shining in the darkness. I, I feel as though a clarifier, though, does need to be made. Um, when the Bible speaks of this tension between light and darkness, the struggle between these two opposing sides, it is not speaking of a dualism as though both were equally matched. And it's sort of like, you know, behind the curtain, and they're wrestling it out. And occasionally, you know, light comes out on top, and then sometime later, darkness comes out on top. I mean, it's, it's not that at all. It is not 
as you see in the Eastern religions, and as much as I love Star Wars, it is not like with the Force. It is not like that at all. According to the Bible, according to reality, darkness and light are not equally matched. Light crushes the darkness. The Lord rules over every manifestation of the darkness, and in Jesus, we have been delivered from it. So we need to be clear on on that score. Light is personal, and we can say that because Jesus is the light and he is a person. Which is all the reason more I, I would plead with you this season Every season, I'm just saying because we're in this season, so this season, the necessity of spending time with him as the person that he is in his word, time in prayer, not allowing the craziness, the franticness of the preparations and the pace to squelch the beauty and the, the, um, the experience of spending time with the living Christ. Do not let yourself be just overcome by the pace and the distraction. And can I also say this? Don't settle for a sentimental celebration either. Without spending time with him, that's exactly what you'll be succumbing to. Yes, your heart will be moved. You will tear up at some point over December because of nostalgia, because of memory, Maybe a good eggnog. I don't know. You do it right. Anyway. And that's fine. The sentiment, the nostalgia, the memories, I get it. But may our hearts be moved by the gospel. By the coming of Jesus. By the reality that in Christ, light shines in that darkness. And we must grasp that if we're to grasp anything as to what this season is is about. This message is so powerful, it, it rings out so like a bell into this universe, into the cosmos. It's, it's almost as though it, there, there are just echoes, reverberations that, that just cannot be completely silenced. If we would have our ears to hear, I'm going to go so far as to say, Clement Clark Moore, a visit from St. Nicholas, even there, there are echoes of this. You know who Clement Clark Moore was? He was an Episcopal bishop in New York City, professor at General Theological Seminary, something of an amateur poet. Uh, known to create verse and recite them to his children from time to time, whimsical and silly at times as they were. It's said that he was inspired for the main character of said rhyme uh, by a taxi driver in the area who happened to have a long white beard and a reddish nose. Christmas Eve, 1822, he recites this verse that he created to his children. Uh, also, as the story goes, he really didn't want his name associated with it, not formally, not publicly, because, of course, the man had a reputation to think about as a professor, right? A professor and a bishop. 
Nonetheless, a family of friend, uh, some family member of friend, someone got a hold of this thing and a year later took it to a newspaper. It was published, and now the cat's out of the bag. Or the elf. You might know the verse, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know, just a little bit. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. Oh, that Isaiah was just as easy to memorize. You see it, though, of course, in the, the imagery here, right? right? The, image, the, the images of a dark, cold winter night, a house. It's like the hatches are battened down to, to protect and keep it all out for the sake of the warmth. And yet, at the same time, there's this hope, there's this sense of expectancy of this someone who's going to arrive to come in from the outside, a welcome intruder, a welcome invasion, if you will. I mean, after all, the stockings have been hung by the chimney with care for a reason. Now, look, I'm, I'm not here to tell you that that's the full gospel message. Um, not for a minute. But the hopefulness, the light in the midst of the dark and the warmth in the midst of the cold it's, it's not as though Clement Clark Moore and the prophet Isaiah are opposed to one another the real difference is of course the authority with which one speaks Moore was a storyteller Isaiah is a prophet of the Lord and Isaiah is speaking of a darkness much deeper and a light so much greater in Jesus light shines in the darkness oh that we would grasp that oh that we would grasp that that we might really grasp what this season is about let me pray Lord Christ, the one whose arrival we celebrate this season, and rightfully so, we ask that you would help us not to settle, not to settle for empty celebration or just warm, fuzzy sentiment. We're glad for opportunities to, to gather as we can, to reflect on all kinds of things that such seasons bring to mind. But we ask that you would infuse every ounce of that, every, every square inch with gospel reality. The darkness is deep deeper than we fear and the light is so much greater greater than we can imagine you've come and you are coming again oh would you help us celebrate celebrate it all we pray in your name amen let me ask our ushers